You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. If you have your Bible, open with me to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up with verse 13 as we're in this series called Headlines. And what Peter is doing throughout this series is he's crying out to people who are being persecuted some headlines that really help bring them hope through their persecution. And, and sometimes we're a fearful people, aren't we? I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get afraid, I fear, uh, I get worried about stuff. Am I the only person in the room who does that? The other people in here do that? Uh, did anyone get fearful last week, let's say uh, Sunday afternoon about 7 p.m., uh, that maybe your team was either going to lose or, and the other team was going to win? Did you, did you have some fears last week? Yes, about that during the Super Bowl because it was up for grabs right till the very end. Some of you maybe are watching Olympics this week, Winter Olympics, and you're fearful about what happens or what's going on with competitors or what's going to uh, be happening in the Olympics, and you're, you're looking at that. You're, we're, we get afraid when it looks like the other team is going to win. We get afraid when it looks like the world and all of that is just winning. We get afraid when it looks like the majority is going another direction than what God tells your life or my life to go, and we, we get fearful. It's hard to have hope if you don't know who's going to win. And we, by nature, our very nature, are a fearful people. It's more apt to be fearful when you're under persecution. Uh, in India right now, when we work with people who are being uh, sex trafficked in villages and we bring like girls into a safe house and we work with them, uh, you know, when we opened and did the ribbon cutting on that safe house, the people who own the property said, you know what, we could be killed for doing this, but we're going to do it anyway and cut that ribbon. And in some time since that has transpired, they begin to say the persecution has increased. We really need for you all to go look for your own land, your own property, because as we're helping you do a good work, the persecution is increasing for us and they're getting fearful. So over the next three years, we will look for our own place to be able to do that as a ministry here. And so we're beginning to look at those kind of things. But it's hard. It's hard when you're under persecution, you get afraid. And America, our persecutions may be a little bit different. In America, our persecutions might not be quite life and death, but they sure make us uncomfortable, don't they? The year that I graduated high school, I was about to head off to college, and I've been working construction since I was 15. I, as soon as I ended being 14 and turned 15, I started working construction, started throwing a hammer and framing houses uh, just right out of the gate, and I did that all the summers of high school. It's how I earned money to be able to buy a car and how I put some money away in savings and just how to handle things. It was a great uh, summer job for me, and my senior year, our church was in a building project, and I thought, if I got to work all summer, if I got to be in Southern California and out under the sun and wearing my t-shirt on my head so I don't get heat stroke, if I got to be out there, then at least if I'm out there, I might as well be working to build my home church. Wouldn't that be great? Kind of a fun thing to be able to do. So I switched construction companies and I show up with all my tools and my little Honda Accord and I get there, I pull up and I start pulling my tools out and this manager, not the owner of the company, but a manager, we began to talk, and he said, oh, you go to this church, huh? I said, yeah. He goes, so are you a Christian? Yes. Yes, I'm a Christian. And he, from that point forward, started persecuting me for my faith in Christ as he's building a church. <laughs> Told me to leave all my tools in the car, and, and for the first month, you know what I did? I swept. 
I mean, I've been building houses, but this is what I did for the first, you know, month. I, every day I'd ask, hey, do you want me to like build that soffit? Do you want me to start on the, up? you know, no, we just need you to sweep. So after a month, finally, they let me start using my tools and I started putting my skills to work. And then uh, I'm working with a guy and when the building had gotten to a point where we had just sprayed the stucco on the wall. So imagine we're getting near completion. We've just sprayed all the stucco on the outside of the walls and we're on the upstairs, the second floor of this on the outside landing, and we're walking with a wheelbarrow, and a friend of mine who works full-time, and I'm just working in the summer, but this guy works year-round for the company, he is pushing the wheelbarrow, but the wheelbarrow is full of big chunks of cement. Imagine like if you broke up a driveway, and then these big massive chunks of cement with jagged edges are hanging off, and as he's pushing it, he's starting to lose control, and he loses control, and he dumps the wheelbarrow and scrapes that brand new stucco sprayed wall with huge chunks of cement and just like, it looks like just a monster just gouged the side of the building. And it's awful, I feel so bad for him, so I'm helping him pick up like the cement. Right then, around the corner of the building comes the manager. His name is Mark, everyone say Mark. So Mark comes around the corner of the building and he sees what's going on and right away the guy who dumped it into the side of the building, who works for him full time, owns up. Hey man, I, I lost control, I did this, I am so sorry. And Mark just brushed him off and came right at me and said, I can't believe you would have done this. And he just tears me up and down and he's calling me names that are derogatory for Christians. And I mean, there's anything he can do, even though the guy who did it owned up to it right there. I was being persecuted on the job at doesn't make for a great workplace environment, does it? There are times that you and I get persecuted. It might be in your home. You might be being persecuted or honestly, in a group this size, you might be the persecutor. You might be at work and someone else is persecuting you. You might be experiencing some religious oppression. You might be experiencing some duress in your life. And I wish at that time in my life that I would know what Peter was talking about. I would know that his headline would come out and I wish I knew that his headline was this, by living an obedient and victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually evangelize a hostile world. I wish in that time that I knew that that could even be a possibility. When I consider people, you know, among people who, you know, I, I give most people a chance, you know, like most people probably have a chance to accept Christ. But then there are some I'm like, mm, I don't think they got any chance. And I would have put, I put Mark in that category for sure. Because, I mean, just the way he treated me definitely, and it was just uh, pretty powerful. Well, Peter begins to write to you, and he begins to write to me, and he begins to write to the people that he's writing to initially in the first century. And he says this, we're picking up in 1 Peter 3, verse 13. He says, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you were blessed. Then he quotes something. He says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So as Peter's writing along to people who are being persecuted, he's saying, listen, you're probably not going to, but if you are doing the right thing and you, get, you suffer for it, here's how you and I respond. He says, do not fear fear their threats. And he quotes an Old Testament passage. So he quotes Isaiah 8.12. This is what Isaiah 8.12 says in the NIV. It says, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. So he's saying, do not fear. And we're a fearful people. Do not fear. And don't call conspiracy everything that the world calls a conspiracy. Right? The Illuminati. Don't got to worry about that. 
You get worried about all these things that the world will call as conspiracy, and they begin to be afraid because we by nature are a frightened people. And Peter's saying, don't fear them. In times of persecution, it's easy to fear. We have reason to fear. But often, for like example, for ourselves, fear often for us, not being in direct threat of our life for being a believer in Jesus Christ here in America, where we've got brothers and sisters around the world who are in, under that direct threat right now in the country in which they live. But often our fear can be overwhelming, our fear can be overtaking, and our fears can keep us awake at night. And I want to give you an acronym for fear. Fear can stand for false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. Because that's what happens, right? We think of the worst possible scenario. We think, what if this is all going to go bad? We begin to make up conspiracies in our mind by which the freedom for that comes from our own self-sufficiency. And it can't. So we don't trust God. We, we don't take those thoughts captive. We tried to maybe a little bit, but we're not taking those thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ. And so we're fearing. We're getting stressed out. We're getting anxious. We're getting worried. But oftentimes for us, it's false evidence appearing real. However, in times of persecution, there is very real reason to fear. And as a country moves, whether it's our country or any other country, more and more toward persecution of Christians, you want to ask, well, how will they do that? How did Nero do it in the first century? He started a fire in Rome, and most of Rome burns down, so he could start his big construction project. And then he says, because of the backlash, he says, the Christians did it. And so Rome, Nero, the emperor of Rome, starts to get people fearful of the consequences of Christians. If they burn down Rome... What could they do? They could do it all over the world. And so a fierce persecution breaks out against Christians. And fear is what cultures will use to ignite persecution of a people group. If you want to know how to ignite persecution of a people group, then fear them. Fear them. And that's what a culture will use to start persecution. And Nero did that against the Christians. Sometimes believers are faced with persecution and that will end their lives. And that is indeed a fearful moment. And yet God will give you a determined courage even in that moment. Almost 20 years ago now, the shooting at Columbine High School, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, these are students at the school, come in and they start throwing pipe bombs and shooting and killing their own classmates. And as they're coming through there, in an active shooter situation, uh, people aren't totally sure what to do, but a lot of students went into the library and were hiding under desks in the library and not sure where the shooting was coming from and, and, and should they get out or should they stay and they just stayed put. And Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold came into that library and they were yelling hatred at people and they were shooting different people and at one point, they come up to a young lady named Cassie Bernal. Cassie had gone to Bear Creek High School, which was right across the street from the church that I served at. And she had gotten involved in drug use there. And her parents pulled her out from really bad influencing friends. They pulled her out of Bear Creek, and they put her in Columbine High School. And she has since then started to attend her youth group. And she accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior and didn't hang out with the crowd that was so poorly influencing her before. And she was really experiencing a new and a fresh change in life in her faith with Jesus Christ. And as she's hiding in the library and those boys come in with their weapons, they begin to call her every name in the book and tear her up and down. And they begin to berate her for her faith. 
And at one point they say, do you believe in God? And she turns and looks him right in the eye and says, yes, I believe in God. And they ended her life right there with a shotgun slug. Now in the years that have happened at the 10 year anniversary, there's a guy named Dave Colin wrote a book that so much of it is fascinating and yet this is the one part he gets wrong. He tries to disprove that that event ever happened. Why? Why would you ever try to disprove the testimony of a believer and yet that's what he tries to do. Yet from eyewitnesses who I know who spoke about what happened in that room the very first moment, they haven't changed their story in over 20 years. And so young ladies like Casey Rusiger said, I saw Cassie Bernal say, yes, I believe in God. God will give you and I a determined courage, even if it's at a point where you and I get martyred. Well, that's what was happening for people in Peter's day. It wasn't speculative. It was actually happening. And so Peter gives us some more encouragement. Look with me at uh, chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an what? Answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so if you're taking notes today on your outline, number two on your outline, you should be ready at the time that someone asks to give a right word about the great news of Jesus that brings you hope. You should be ready. Some of you will be like, I don't know, I'm, I'm worried if someone asks, like, I don't have all the answers, I don't have it all together, I don't know where it all is, and that's okay because you're in common company, company, I don't have all the answers, I don't have it all together, I don't know where it all is. But Peter says, be ready, be ready to give an answer. So what, what kind of answer can you give? The answer you can give is you can tell them how much God has done for you. They can't refute it if they tell you how much God has done for you. For you, you tell them about your life. Tell them what it was like before. Tell them what it was like now after. Tell them what Christ has done, how he has changed your life and your experience. Charles E. Dangerfield wrote a book called Filling the Void. And he writes this book as a resource to young men, particularly fatherless young men, about what it looks like to walk into manhood. And as he's telling these illustrations here to young men, he begins to tell what God did for him. And this is what he says. The happiness I thought I was looking for was actually peace within myself. For me, that only came as I started to have a real relationship with God. Then and only then did I finally stop getting in my own way and began letting God mold me into the man he intended me to be. Being at peace with what God had in store for me brought contentment and real joy. So Charles, as he's writing this book, he goes on just to express, this is what God did for me. I was looking for happiness, but what I really needed was peace between myself and God. And when I responded to that, then I began to experience contentment and joy. Though he had no father that he knew so directly, he knew him periodically, but he wasn't daily present in his life, he began to feel fulfilled with a heavenly father. Well, you can follow that up and give a good apologetic. Apologetic doesn't mean apologize. 
It means a defense for your faith. And the more that you and I learn and the more that you and I have reason to study the Bible and to walk through things, then those things become very helpful as we share with people. But the first thing we do is prepare ourselves with an answer. There were a lot of Christians who played on the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. And a lot of them, at the end of the game, the microphone was put in their face, and I just want to ask you, do you think they were prepared with an answer? Did you watch the end of the game? Did you see some of the interviews? Do you think they, they were prepared? Yes, they were. They thought, okay, if we win, and at the end of the game, when a reporter asks me to say something, I'm going to come prepared with something that honors my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they were prepared with an answer. They obviously had predecided how they were going to answer. Well, what about you? Have you predecided how you're going to answer? Because someday somebody's going to ask you about religion. Someday someone's going to ask you about hope. Someday someone's going to ask you about fear. Someday someone's going to ask you about your faith. Someday they're going to ask you, and, and will you predecide how to share what God has done for you? You can have a beautiful testimony. A number of years later, over a decade after uh, working construction, I lived in Colorado as a youth pastor, and then I flew back to Southern California, and I was at church on a Sunday morning, and I went up to the class where my parents were with all their friends, and so I went up to this Sunday school class to find them, and as I'm walking in, it's kind of a larger class, and as I'm walking in, uh, this guy comes up to me and says, hi Dave, do you remember me? And it's the construction manager who persecuted me, and I'm looking around like, are you fixing like a cabinet? Like, what, what's going on in here, right? Like, there's no construction going on right now. Of course, like, how could I forget? Of course I remember you. But it's one of those moments where it's out of context, like, him in here. <laughs> Didn't quite connect, right? And, and so he, he comes up and he says, I'll bet you never would thought that you would see me in here. And I'm thinking, you bet right. He said, about two years ago, after resisting God my whole life, Jesus finally got a hold of me and I gave my life to Christ. And he said, and I need to apologize to you because I used to be so angry against you for your faith in Christ. And I went away marveling, like, are you kidding me, God? Like, you reached the furthest out person and I'm not taking any credit because I hadn't been around for years. He knew, having come to Christ, that, wow, the opportunity presented itself. I need to go apologize to that guy because I gave him a hard time. But I wish that I knew that by living an obedient, victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually evangelize a hostile world. And I guarantee you, God tag-teamed him with lots of Christians over time that began by their reaction to speak to the truth of the gospel and the saving power, amazing saving power of Jesus Christ. And so to this day, Mark Ruthell follows Jesus, and it's a beautiful picture. See, we are not alone in our suffering. Peter is saying, he's writing to these people, he's saying, listen, you're not so unique, you're not alone. Let's go back to one who suffered already. And so he goes back and he says this in 1 Peter 3, 18. He gives us the best example. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus. For the unrighteous, that's us. To bring you to God. 
He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. All right, so he says a lot in that verse. Christ only had to die once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. But then he says this, he was put to death in the what? In his body, but he was made alive in what? His spirit. Okay, when was Jesus made alive in the spirit? If they crucified him and his body was dead, fight him and his body was dead, when did the spirit come alive? Right away when he died. Someone right down here got the answer right. People are like, well, what about Easter morning? No, that's when his body came back and his spirit was in the body. But when was the spirit made alive? You ask the question, where will I be 60 seconds after I die? Your body will be dead. But your spirit will be made alive either for destruction or for heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus was made alive in the spirit right away. His body was dead in the tomb for three days, but Jesus' spirit was alive. So the question is, if his spirit was alive, what did Jesus do for three days? And I got to be honest with you, 99% of pastors won't touch this next passage. In fact, I know some pastors who will preach through 1 Peter and they just kind of skip these next few verses as if they don't exist because they can be problematic for them. And I want you to know today that you are in the right church because one of our very values here at Sun Grove Church is if the Bible talks about it, we're going to talk about it. That's just one of our values. It's right there on your outline. I want you to catch that and understand that. We made that decision when our kids were little. If the Bible talks about it, we're going to talk about it. If we don't know, we're going to work, we're going to study, we're going to try to figure it out. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, Peter writes of Jesus, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. And it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. So he's saying this. Jesus was suffered, he crucified, he was buried in the grave, his body was dead for three days, he was alive in the spirit, he saves us through faith in Christ, and then he is ascended back up into heaven, and he's with, as God, he is with the angels and authorities and powers, they're all in submission to him. But we have to ask, what in the world is he talking about? What did Jesus do when he went to talk to these, quote, spirits in prison. What is that all about? Well, the spirits in prison are mentioned in the context of what Jesus did in between the time of his death and his resurrection. And we know four things about spirits that are mentioned here. One, they are spirit, not flesh. Okay, so just understand that they're spirits, they're not flesh. Two, they are imprisoned. Three, their sin was committed before the flood. So Noah, Genesis, Old Testament, at the, pretty much the beginning, he's basically saying way back then, that's when their sin was committed. And four, that Jesus visited their place of captivity. Well, who exactly are these spirits? We have to ask, who are they? You know, what are they doing there and who are they? We have to look at the Greek word. The Greek word is pneumatos, which means spirits, but it comes from the root pneuma, which means like breath, like, ah, like spirit. So 
he's using the word of that, and it's clear that human beings, we possess a, a spirit, but we are not spirits. Does that make sense? Like we have the spirit of life in us, but we are not spirits. We are flesh and blood and spirit. We're all matched together. These are exclusive. These are spirits. In contrast, God, the Holy Spirit, angels, demons are never said to possess spirits. They are spirits. You don't say that the Holy Spirit has a spirit. He is spirit. That's the way he works. That's what he is. And that's what happens. And so we said that so... The spirits that he's talking about in prison are not human beings. So the spirits in prison, if they're not human beings, they can't also be holy angels because they continue their work as messengers before the Lord. They have not sinned. They're not in prison. So that leaves us with one option, that the spirits in prison are demons and not all demons because these demons are held for captivity, but the New Testament is clear that there's demonic activity not only that Jesus interacted with, but there's demonic activity that will continue until all things are made right under God in heaven. But it's some, a specific group of spirits, a specific group of demons who unlike the rest of their demonic allies, these ones are held captive. So often demons in the New Testament, when they meet Jesus, they say, have you come to torture us? Have you come to put us in prison? What are they referring to? They know what's happened to some other demons. Well, let's look at that and see what goes on. Jude gives us a little insight into what Peter is talking about here. In Jude 1.6, he says, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for what? for judgment on the great day. So this is a group of very wicked angels that are currently bound. Peter also refers to this group of angels in this context, not only in 1 Peter, but in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he's making an argument. He's saying, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, quote, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So he goes on from there. He's referring to the same event, the same group, the same thing. The sin the spirits committed that put them in this prison could be the one in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, when it records the sons of God mating with the daughters of men, producing a race of giants known as the Nephilim. Some of you are like, are you serious that's in the Bible? Yes, it is. You, you ought to read this book. It's a good book. It really is. If the sons of God and their wickedness in the time of Noah were fallen angels, then the sin that involved the demons leaving the place they belonged in an act of disobedience before the flood and corresponds to what Peter says. It seems likely that the demons cohabited with human women. These demons were imprisoned by God to prevent them from repeating it and to discourage other demons from trying it. Peter is saying that Jesus, we're not focused on the demons, we're not focused on the spirits, but we're focused on what happened to Jesus when he was in the grave from the time of crucifixion to the moment of resurrection, that his spirit, next on your outline, Jesus made a public declaration to these spirits in prison. 
The word translated proclaimed means to publicly declare. Peter says that Jesus went down to the abyss to where these spirits were held. He proclaimed his victory to the fallen angels in prison there. That they had lost, that he had won, that the cross triumphs over all evil. And Jesus in that moment did the best and first end zone celebration ever. He won. It's greater than an award. It's greater than anything else. He has fought. He's fought the battle. This is what we, we were created for. It was what he decided to do to redeem people. He knew before the creation of the world what he would choose to go through for you and for me so there could be peace between us and God. And he goes and he proclaims victory. Peter is saying to you and me, he's saying to the marginalized, the persecuted, the fearful believers, Listen, this is how the game is guaranteed to end. No suspense is needed and hope is encouraged. In fact, he's saying to these believers who are persecuted, you've got everything to live for and the future starts right now. And your future doesn't just end with the body. Your future is gonna go on between the time that the body may be persecuted, killed, even martyred. The future starts now. And God is the one who brings you safely into his kingdom we got to ask a question because in that previous passage, Peter begins to talk about baptism. And I want to just have you answer this on your outline. The question is this, does baptism save a person? Does baptism save a person? Answer is no. Baptism does not save a person. If I believe that baptism saved a person, we would lock the doors and I'd just start filling up the room with water. And the ushers would go around and they would like pretend like they're going to high five and then they just dunk your head. And we'd go up there, there'd be a waterfall coming off the loft there. You all would be getting plenty wet. But just to be fair, even in the days of Noah when God sent the flood, just being fair, the people who got wet were the ones who died. And Peter begins to use the picture of Noah building an ark and then being on that ark and being carried through the water as a symbol of God's initiation, as a symbol of divine intervention. And that what, what Noah was doing, and it was eight people, it was Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, eight people and all the animals, and they get on the ark and God intervenes. God says, I'm gonna destroy the world, but I'm gonna intervene on your behalf. And now in the New Testament, Peter is saying, listen, Jesus intervened on your behalf that the righteous one died for the unrighteous. He paid for our sins once for all. He's the initiator. He's the one who intervened for you. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who's seen it all from beginning to end. He's the one who comforts you in your grief and in your persecution or your loss. And he loves you very much. He's the initiator. He used an ark floating on the water to represent his divine intervention. So, to Peter, people say, well, why would he save it there? Why would he say blah, 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 water baptism, which also saves? And then he goes on to talk about your professing your faith in Christ. Well, to Peter in first century, it would be almost unheard of for a person to believe in Jesus Christ and not be baptized at the earliest convenience. Like to him, those two elements wouldn't be inseparable. It's not baptism that saves. 
but it's faith in Christ. In fact, he 